Welcome to Dear God of My Funny with your hosts, Derek and Eric. One, two, three, four. It's recording now, isn't it? It is recording, Eric. And we're about to have a great time with Herschel Bleefeld. So. Do you need me to, like, lean up? can't really say casually. It's more comfortable. You, I need you up. Turn. Here, how's that? Is that better? Yeah. Put that right in my face. You know what? In the end, this is going to be a podcast, not about comedy, but about audio issues. <laughs> Don't leave me. Yeah, that's good. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. Sibilance. Anyway. Sibilance. Any- three, five. Three, five. Very good. Oh, yeah. We're here with Herschel Bleefeld. Bleefeld. What is that, German? <laughs> <laughs> um, he's not He's not a, Jew, a Jewish. No, you know he's what? Not it's, a Jewish. It's, it's actually... Uh, <laughs> it's Native American. <laughs> Adam. Yeah. It was one of those Part two. of the Onita tribe. <laughs> the Jewy part of the Onita tribe. Yeah. No, um... Should we just? We're jump? not doing it. We're not doing it yet, right? Well, I, I mean, it's we we're just, always doing it. We're always doing it. I mean, really? do we just jump right into Kanye, or do what, we not I, talk about that? Yeah, and let him die a silent death. Adidas uh, pulled their deal with him. That's what I heard. Which is good because I was uh, I boycotted wearing my Adidas for twenty four hours. And I then... boycotted buying them years ago. Too narrow. Too narrow. Forget the whole. Forget the politics. I got big feet. Too narrow. <laughs> I appreciate the anti-Semitism in that angle, but for me, just a little too narrow. I got a, I got a D <laughs> foot. Not going any. Not me. Yet. I have a narrow foot. You a deer? No, it's a, uh, that's cowboy boot talk. I think. Oh really? In a size. He's D, from Indiana. D. I'm double E. They, I don't think they wear cowboy boots. And you're double E. That's a fat fucking. They they don't wear cowboy boots in Indiana. Not like like it's not known for. No. What do they wear? Timberlands. They wear or a work boot. No. In the nineties, they were definitely wearing Timberlands. Yeah, but it's a work boot. But they were trying to be like hip hop, R and B, babyface culture. Indiana. Yeah, you remember when? uh, Yeah, I guess Timberlands came out and it was like TLC wore them and big baggy. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, but they're not from Indiana, are they? No, but it was like But it had a big hit. effect in the culture of oh, yeah. Indiana. A lot of white boys wanted to be black guys in Indiana. Do you you do know TLC were all women? Yeah. Okay. Big Just making fan. sure. That's why it's Indiana. Left eye. That's the only person I remember wearing them. <laughs> Left eye. A huge crush on Left Eye. Yeah. Do you, you remember that song Don't Go Chasing a Waterfall or Waterfalls? Yeah, yeah Waterfalls. Right? Uh, that was oddly enough, that was a sketch that we did in my improv group in college where I just thought it would be funny cuz remember the video was them in like water yeah, wearing yeah. Fem- wearing pajamas. So I said, "Why don't we just go out there wearing lady pajamas, put us each in a baby pool, mm-hmm. right? With no shirts on." Smart. And we'll just do some of the moves yeah. and you'll splash water on us. Uh as fun as it was to do that, <laughs> it didn't really get the comedy uh, response that we were hoping for. But I have to tell you, I did love wearing lady pajamas. Silk? Silk? Yeah, very comfortable. Comfy. Yeah, it was good. I'll find silk pajamas and uh, male pajamas. I've got a pair. I, I Because of my sensory things, I have to have sweatpants and a t-shirt on. Really? At night, yeah. I don't think I knew this about you. 
That's because you don't listen to our podcast. I like to re- be yeah. reminded. Um, I live in the moment. We talked about it in the first episode. The, I like to be reminded of the history of my people. So I wear a burlap sack to sleep. Mm. Is that that's a Jewish thing? No, people or from Native Ohio. American. People from Ohio. No. Oh. So Herschel Bleefeld. You got to cut that, by the way. We're not going to. Um, so this is uncensored. Yeah. Oh well, then. Fuck. I'll tell you one of the <laughs> one of the uh, pieces of feedback we've gotten about, uh, besides the great audio stuff, uh, is uh, it often seems like you guys don't know that you're recording, <laughs> which I think is a really. I think it's a nice a, touch. It, 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 it brings people into our conversation, right? That's what I think. Yeah, we'll find out. Um, so Herschel Bleefeld, actor. <clears throat> Right, dad. He's a dad. Actor, actor dad. dad. He's a you're, man. You're the, man. You're He's the, got light eyes. The third person who we're interviewing, that comedy background, um, you know, levels of success in this industry, struggle in this industry, but from the Midwest. Mm. Yeah, Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Columbus Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. So um, why don't we start there, where it all began? So you grew up in Columbus. I did. And is and I'm thinking about this as a theme for the people we interview. Um, is comedy and being funny a way to get out of the Midwest? Yeah, I think there's a level of repression in the Midwest, and uh, people mm-hmm. tend to stay where they're from in the Midwest. So if you if you look at my uh, the suburb that I'm from, it's called Gehanna, Ohio, which by the way in Hebrew means hell. That makes sense. Oddly enough, my dad told me that. He's a rabbi. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, so the people that I grew up with, I would say like 90% of my class, which is about 450 people, still live in Gehanna or Columbus, Ohio. They Their kids go to the, like, they're pic- posting pictures from middle school east. Right. And you're like, you're wearing, you're in this, wearing the same jerseys we wore. Like, it's very weird. Yeah, they stay. And they stay. Same in my so, hometown, yeah. Right, what so is that? well, you would appreciate that coming from Indiana. You know that like there's a real hometown vibe. There's a hometown pride. Um, I was not endowed with that. I, I we moved around a little bit because uh, you know because your dad like, as a rabbi moving yeah, like an army brat but a religious brat rabbi right. <laughs> so, but this is interesting. We we uh, interviewed our friend Brian Thomas Smith mm-hmm. and. Um, and he's St. Louis. He's from St. Louis, right? Yeah. yeah. And one of the things he mentioned um, was that uh, when he was acting at, in high school, towards the end of his uh, stint in high school and in college, yeah. that there were so many more talented people, but they just stayed home. They did some regional stuff, and then they, but making that leap to leave That's is, like a, is a big leap. Yeah, I would say this, uh, and it's interesting, and I'm not trying to sound weird about it, but like, that's a very humble thing to say, but the reality is, like, I knew growing up that, like, there was something different about me, even with the people that I acted with. And you they knew were good. You were better. I don't want to say it was better, but I think that there was an instinctual thing about my acting ability that I just kind of identify with that I think other people didn't. And, like, you know, it was very much like, we love doing theater because we really, you know, there's no other group for us so that's how we express ourselves through theater you know that's a common thing so how do you get into it so it's 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 really weird i loved drawing i wanted to be an architect or a disney imagineer and from the time that i was seven eight years old i loved drawing my notebooks are filled with doodles and drawings Mm. of buildings and all sorts of stuff 
my freshman year of high school, you get to high school and they're like, hey, you can choose your electives, right? Mm -hmm. So you could do, you know, your fine art elective was either like art, music, whatever. I signed up for art class. I go to the first art class and they're like, the first assignment, I'll never forget this. They're like, we want you to make your name and just draw it, something interesting. That was the assignment. I went home and I have this weird thing where I can draw um, perspective without a ruler or any measurement tools. It's Ooh. like a weird thing that some people have. Yeah. And um, I did my name and I made it look like a baseball logo and it's like, it's 3D and all of this stuff and I shaded it and it looked pretty cool, right? For a 13 year old yeah. kid, I started high school at 13. Walk in there, hand it in. Uh, after the class, the teacher calls me over and goes, uh, you're gonna get a C on this. And I'm giving you a C because you went way over and beyond what I had asked for for the assignment. You're never going to learn anything in this class. Go take a different elective. Wow. <laughs> You're too good for the class. I, I, again, I think it was the challenge of trying to find a curriculum in art that would work for me. Right. Um, so I, that expression then becomes acting. So I went and I enrolled in a drama class because I needed to fill, fill the requirement. Mm -hmm. And um, I started doing, you know, it's always like like plays in, in high school. Man Who Came to Dinner, Plaza Suite, it's, it's Neil Simon, <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's that stuff. And um, we, we were doing all those things, and I, I didn't love it, to be very frank. Like, I thought it was kind of like... It how, felt, how old are you when you're doing this? 14, 15, that age. Um, but I always liked performing. Like, at camp, I would always do, like, camp. Was you know, it very serious, the class? No, I mean, it was my buddies. It was like, you know, Dan and Aaron, and we were all in there. And we, we sure. took it because Dan took and Aaron. Dan and Aaron, and whatever. Yeah. Um, and and we, I took the class because, you know, I needed to fulfill it. But everybody took the class because, like, it was just something to do and it was fun. And, like, we goofed around a lot right. in that class. Once you're pegged as an actor, you can you get away with a little bit of more goofing around than other kids. Like, yeah. You know, we would, there was a, a fold out bed. You know, to do scenes. So one day, like, the, me and all my buddies, we just took the bed and started rolling it around the halls, doing cartwheels, and just, you know, like weird drama kid right. shit. Um, and then I, comedy didn't become, like, a real thing for me. Like, I didn't know that there was an explicit, like, um, talent for comedy until a little bit later. Were you naturally funny <clears throat> as a kid? Yeah. Yeah, I was goofy. I wouldn't say it was funny, but I was goofy. I was always doing like, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson like impression, like "Hey, pal," you know, like joking around with my family. Was and that stuff. the impression? No, I, okay, I, good. I don't think I could do it anymore. <laughs> but like, I, I remember like doing goofy stuff. Um, and Were you pegged class clown or a class clown <sighs> type? I was. It's weird because I was definitely maybe. Maybe I was considered class clown. By the time that kids started, you, you, again, you have to remember, Gehanna, Ohio, early 90s, uh, there were a lot of race issues. There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of bigotry. There was a lot of white kids who didn't like anybody different. It, it was a very provincial feeling. Hmm. Um, I was the Jew kid. Ah. I was one of eight Jew, Jewish kids in the whole school. So this is kind of what I, I, I used comedy to diffuse some uncomfortable moments. Like there was a kid who came up to me, um, like my sophomore year and he said, Hey, it's a real shame. Uh, and I said, why? 
And he goes, well, you're really funny, but you're going to hell. Mm. And you're like, wow, that's, yeah, that's heavy for like, you know, at two o'clock on a Tuesday. And I'm, and I remember responding to him and just being like, no, I'm actually going to newspaper class. <laughs> like thinking like, ah, you know, gotcha. but it was like, you always kind of had to like come up with something to right. like combat that. And there was a lot of that, um, oh, in that, yeah. in that school, a lot of racism too. Actually, my school, if you look it up, had one of the very first school shootings, my senior year Ooh. of high school, they didn't do it to hurt anybody, but it, but two, two African-American guys came in, they were really upset, disgruntled. They were treated like shit. Right. And they came in, shot up the, the cafeteria. Again, they didn't do it to hurt anybody, and it was a, a different time. But um, my, my mom tells the story that she was, like, worried because she heard about it, and she called the school, and she goes, oh, my God, is Herschel okay? Is Herschel, I, I don't know. And they're like, uh, he's not here today. <laughs> and it turns out I, I was upstairs sleeping. You know, it was my seven, second semester. Your mother senior. has no idea you're in the house. Yeah, she had no <laughs> idea. She didn't even know. Um <laughs> But it was definitely a way to like comedy was a way to sort of like um, vent frustration and sort of like be smarter than the situation that I was in mm-hmm. and, and kind of outsmart it and feel like I could, uh, y- you know, rise above the the hurt. And so what was, ga- gave you the confidence to hightail it out of there? It's a great question. So I knew that I didn't want to stay in Ohio. Um, I knew that I was different than a lot of the other kids. Why did, was it the racism that made uh, you not want to be there? Or was there a band or was there people performing somewhere where you're like, I want to go where they're going? No, in fact, I went to school. So I always, my dad took me on a trip to Washington, D.C. in 1986 um, for a conference. Uh, and Re- I, Reagan years. The Reagan oh, years. Yeah. Reaganomics. Doing great. Camelot. That was um, Camelot. <laughs> it's the second Camelot. Um, and I fell in love with DC. Mm. Loved it. Like, it's such a cool city. Great vibe. I kind of always felt like I want to get out of here and go to school in DC. Um, so. And you, so you end up at GW. I ended up at George Washington University. I was originally, I got into American University, Maryland University, or University of Maryland, and. Um, I was, it was between those two. I didn't hear from GW yet. And I, um, I was like, well, which one has, you know, more fun, whatever. I was really like torn. I had kind of made my mind up that I was going to go to American university, um, which would have been funny because a friend of mine who's out here now, you may know him, Chris Wilde, you know, Chris, that sounds familiar. He's a very Chris funny, Wilde. great comedian. He ended up going to American university and I would have been in a comedy troupe with him had I gone to America. Yeah. But at the last minute, I got a admission letter to GW and I wanted to be a speech writer and study political science. And I felt like GW just felt right. So when you make the decision, you're going to DC, you get into GW, speech writing, political science. So how does acting, yeah. comedy manifest it's like do you do you are you thinking well i'm leaving that part of myself behind because now i'm transitioning into something different it's a very you know that again that's a really interesting touch point in my life i did not have a lot of luck with girls i was kind stop of stop it yeah surprise <laughs> um <laughs> and i was down on myself like you know i had a confidence and a cockiness but it was like fake it was like i was doing it to you know, compensate for feeling not so great about myself. Right. Um, summer camp that summer, I was a counselor and it was the summer of 93, right before I'm going to college. 
And a guy from the staff, he went to Northwestern University. And he had his improv group come down and do some shows for the staff during staff week. Oh. And um, they were asking for volunteers. And I got up there and I did a couple things. And I actually remember what I did. And I won't get into it, but it's interesting that I remember what I did. And um, people started laughing. And people were like really into it and laughing. And I was like, oh, this felt good. Um, And then cut to orientation week at GW. I went to the very last orientation week. It was August. It was hot as balls. Um, you know, you're putting 17 and 18 year old kids in Thurston Hall, which is a 900 person, uh, freshman dorm. So it was just oozing with hormones and sexuality and drugs and everything. Um, and, uh, it was a real fun experience that first week and during the orientation, uh, in Lisner Auditorium, a group called the No Time Players performed for Colonial, it was called Colonial Inauguration, which was the orientation. And I watched these three guys get up there, and a, there was a girl in the group, and they just slayed it. And they were just doing like the crazy, like that Saturday Night Live kind of funny yeah. stuff. And I always loved Saturday Night Live. Like I watched it, and I thought it was great. And I was like, that would be a fun job for me. Right. Like, but I never like thought it would be real. But I see these four guys from the No Time Players, and I'm like, I want to do that. Like that would be fun. Week later, all around campus, these yellow flyers show up. Now, it's not No Time Players. It's a group called GW Recess. I found out later that GW Recess was the No Time Players. Those four guys went to New York. And so they made the college group change their name to GW Recess. Because when they go to New York, they're going to be so big. They're going to be big. They're going to be huge. They need to keep that name. Right. And they were actually... <laughs> what, what happened to those They guys? did great. And then they came out here and did pretty well. Um, but it didn't like last, you know, it's fleeting. It's all fleeting right. unless yeah. you like really, um, so I decided I'm going to go audition for this improv group. Again, I started school at, se- at college at 17. I'm a young 17. Who's watching, who is there judging the audition? It's the group. So they have so a dir- other college kids. Yeah. But you know, it's like graduate students or like older 21, 22. And, um, Tim Gore, a guy named Tim Gore, he was the director of the group. And I remember going in there and, and auditioning. It was a room called the Theater Lab. And in those days, you could smoke inside. And it was literally, they were all lined up. They were theater blocks, you know, yeah. from like, uh, from like uh, rehearsals. They're sitting there and they're all smoking in this little room and it stinks as shit in there. <laughs> and I get up there and I don't remember the audition really. I don't really remember anything about it. Um, and I was like, well, that was fun and interesting. And then I remember thinking there was a guy in there that was so funny. And I was like, that guy's going to get it. He's a sophomore. He's so funny. He's, they're going to take him. He's just had it. He, yeah. And I'm like, I'm fucking around. I don't know what I'm doing. So a few days go by, and I get a phone call on a real phone with a cord in my dorm room. And uh, it was, uh, uh, hello, Herschel. This is Tim Gore from uh, GW Recess. And Tim was hilarious as shit. But he's very, like, buttoned up Republican-y. Okay. Like, he's a very serious yeah. guy, like, when he wasn't doing comedy. But... Killer instincts and hilarious. Uh, we thought you were funny. We'd like you to come to a, a you know, a rehearsal and see if it would be a good fit. I remember hanging up the phone and being like, um, I think that was a lie. I think that was like one of my friends fucking with me. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not going to go to this tea lab and like show up in that room and be like humiliated. But by the way, in our 40s now, looking back, yeah, Tim Gore... Mm-hmm. He's like 22 years old. Then he's smoking cigarettes. So he's cool. giving you a call. 
could you imagine a 22 if a 22 year old called you now with that kind of <laughs> yeah. person you would just be like get the fuck out, out. Of here. what is this yeah no it, i mean you can't. but when you're 17 18 yeah, he it, he's the most intimidating person he was intimidating that whole group was intimidating and I, in fact so i i i actually asked my ra to walk me to the audition that's cute. or no or that's sorry to, to the first rehearsal um, because I was so, I was convinced that it was not real. Now, when I get there, the other guy who got in was that guy. The sophomore. Who was the funniest guy I've ever seen in my life, who turned out to be my closest college friend. We ended up becoming really good friends. Um, he's out here. He's a writer. He's a brilliant um and I think you know his name. His name is Matt Flanagan. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, Matt's but, great. So he, but I was like in awe of him. But to compensate for that, and he'll tell you this story, for like the first three or four months of us being in the group, we didn't really get a lot of like you know, stage time or whatever. Like we were the newbies. We were like the ones who like shoveled them out there to make them do the shit that nobody else wants to do. Right. Um, and <laughs> I would, every once in a while, I would see him. We, we weren't really good friends at this point, and I'd see him and I'd go... Uh, uh, hey Matt, um, Tim wanted me to talk to you today. He's uh, he just doesn't think you're a right fit for the group. You're you're out of the group, <laughs> and I'd do it, and he'd be like, "What?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, it was the, it's not it's either you or me." And I he felt uncomfortable about it, so I'm just gonna need you to go. <laughs> and like you know, and for the first three or four months, I would just fuck with him like that, and like it became like a joke, and we really like have have a laugh about it now. But um, so GW recess, I got you know I started doing it, and then my big my big thing was my was in the f- uh, spring of that year, and Adam Sandler was doing like songs on SNL and like it was becoming like people were incorporating like you know singing and comedy and like things like that. I wrote a song called the Matzah Song, for real. And Wait, hold on, and Derek Matzah is this giant gross cracker that we have to eat for a week in April. Oh my God! I didn't on Passover. I always yeah. wondered. Sometimes it's March. Okay. Sometimes it's April. We yeah. can get into how the Jewish calendar works on a future episode. eleven months. Sometimes. Yeah, it's twelve months. Others. Thanks um, for clearing that up for me. You're Eric. welcome. Yeah. <laughs> but his wife's Jewish. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, you know. I should have known. So now you know. Was. Now you. Know. I just assumed you didn't. You may, yeah. You may have. I, 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 I think I already forgot what it is. It's the big cracker. It's forgettable. But it's anyway, you wrote a song. So I wrote a song. Because you're the, trying to educate people. But no, but I'm trying to like break in and do some bit yeah. that like gets me. And I wrote the Matzah song and it like, people just thought it was hilarious. And so. Do I, we have a copy of that that we could play right now? I don't think there is anywhere. I could maybe you want to perform it live? Nah. Good. I'm good. Um, but, um, but so I did it. And then, you know, I was feeling kind of confident. Like, people were like, oh, he's got, he's got some comedy chops. He's, he's got some yeah. things going on. And then I immediately followed it up <laughs> with another song, uh, which was ill-timed and inappropriate, called uh, uh, Kurt Cobain's Dead. Oh. Because uh, he shot himself, and I <laughs> thought it would be hilarious to make a song, because I'm feeling really good about the Matzah right. song. Everything I touch now turns to gold. I write this song, uh, and it was the worst lyrics. It was, uh, and now Kurt Cobain's Dead shot himself in the head now he's in nirvana Ooh. and uh, and uh, bad reaction to pretty that. much got booed off people were upset <laughs> yeah, they were still yeah. sensitive yeah and our and our and the person who was the tech person named Melissa Folger for recess i remember doing it in rehearsal 
and being like, I'm going to slay. Everybody's going to laugh. And she starts c- crying during the bit. She's like, you're a fucking asshole. <laughs> and I was like... I was well, like, so I was going to ask you about the Monsta song. <laughs> and now it's interesting because social media obviously is not at play when you're in college. No such thing. Right? So... Gee whiz. I had a gee whiz email account. Yeah. You know, gee whiz. <laughs> um, and so you do the Monsta song in 2022. Yeah. And you could just be famous doing the matzo song on TikTok or whatever. But the funny thing is where social media would have given you all these accolades for something like the matzo song. Because I remember we have a mutual friend who went to GW um, and Herschel met him again out here in L.A., uh, and the first thing the guy said was, oh, the matzo song, right? So, like, obviously it was known, yeah, right? But so had it been known a, on a social media level, it could have been huge. But then the flip side is then you do the Kurt Cobain song, <laughs> and you would have been right. immediately canceled. And then canceled yeah. by Adidas. Right. Adidas right. is firing me. <laughs> right. but, um, but, yeah, so that song kind of, like, became, like, a thing, and it was funny. And, like, um, in every, like, whenever we would do a best of show or, like, at the 10-year reunion – they had me back and like we played the matzo. You know, it yeah. kind of had a, like a thing and it was fun. My mom and dad thought it was hilarious. They saw me perform it. And and so from there, I just got, you know, more comfortable and was incorporated in more sketches. Now, GW's improv group is interesting because it's known throughout the city. It's not just GW. Yeah. Because it's like you have all these interns from all over the country that come and they're drunk on Friday nights. We always performed on Friday night at midnight. So everybody would go out to the bars and then they'd want something to do. So they would come. We played in this black box theater in the basement of Lisner Auditorium, same auditorium where I saw No Time Players. So it was a neat kind of connection. Um, And we would sometimes like get 150 people in this tiny ass room. Other times, you know, there would be 20 people there, but it was like, a thing like in the city, go see recess at midnight. Um, so there was like some fire to, to recess and being in it. And I, I'm very proud of that because the acting, the acting training that I got in school was great, but the idea of like, there's nothing like doing it right. Regular on a routine and people can be, they can, they trust that you're going to be there. They show up and then they get to support you in your career, which I think that's, when you get that level, then you can you feel like you can go anywhere, which then leads you to moving to LA or New York. Well, well not, so I'm going to ask yeah. when, when your parents call and go, "How's the speech writing going?" <laughs> At what point are you like, "Well, well, it's so I had I had auditioned for an acting scholarship before my freshman year and I didn't get it. Um, so I always had like a little bit of that bug inside of me. Okay. Um, but at the end of sophomore year, there happened to be a scholarship because somebody dropped out, couldn't make it. Um, and I auditioned and I got it. So my parents were pretty much prepared for me to be like, I'm going to be a theater major because I got the scholarship and I signed switch gears and, and all of that. Now, is there anything more disappointing for a parent when at first it's our son's going to GW, he's going to be writing speeches for great, great politicians one day. It's going to be, and then they get the, I'm a theater major now. I'm really lucky, Eric. You've met my parents. They have always said to me, no matter what, do what you are passionate do about. Do what you love. Do what you want. Wherever it leads you. Wherever it leads you. That's I wish awesome. your parents had raised me. Yeah. Well, I was huh. very lucky in that yeah. way. Um, I think they knew that I was like a kind of a out of the box kind of kid and that I was never going to be able to like fit into some specific thing that they were going to let me find my way. Um, the cool thing that happened in college that was kind of the first 
like thing that let me know that I was probably destined to do something more with acting uh, and comedy was we went to the Skidmore College Comedy Festival and Saratoga Springs. Saratoga Springs. And there were scouts from MTV there. And they approached me and they asked me to um, submit a, a, uh, an audition tape to be an MTV VJ. Oh. And I remember doing it. Um, and uh, the woman who I was my contact, I sent a demo tape. I didn't get it. But like you started feeling like, oh, things are. Yeah, you've something's happening. Something's some starting to happen. Yeah. Then I got some other jobs in D.C. that were pretty cool. Um, and then when I was graduating, I was like, all of my friends were like, we're going to go to New York and be starving actors and it's going to be cold and it's going to be depressing, but we're going to live that life. And I had a friend, um, who I did some acting gigs with in DC, who was also in GW recess, but he was a few years older than me. He already graduated from no time player. So it's, it's confusing. Um, and he said, I think I'm going to move to LA. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to move to LA with you. I like sun. Yeah. And in 1998, Moved out to L.A. Um, saw him start getting like an agent and manager and all that stuff. And nothing really happened from, with me for the first couple years. It was what were like, you going out for at first? Uh, nothing. <laughs> yeah. So did you try to find, you know, did you try stand-up? Did you try to find an improv group out here? Yeah, I started working with a theater company called... Uh, um, sorry. Um, Sacred Fools. Do you guys know Sacred Fools? No. It's a it's a really cool. John Hamm was in that theater company. There's been some other cool people, and I did. I I was feeling so down about all of it. I'm like, I just need to go do a play. Is it one of the ones off Melrose? Because I think that's like our theater. It was on Heliotrope at okay. the time. I think it might be on Hudson Street. I don't I don't know where it is now. Okay. But it's still around. Yeah. Um. And I just when I was like, I'm gonna audition for this two gentlemen of a road. I think I saw it in one of the trade papers. And it was an audition. I just was like, I'm going to go audition because it was a rap version of Two Gentlemen of Verona called Two G's. Mm-hmm. And I auditioned and I got a role. And it kind of reinforced that I was meant to be out here because it was hard until then. Right. Like I was probably yeah. depressed and it was tough. It's hard to get out of the couch. So what's the first thing that you get or the first moment? Because you know, we say on the podcast, dear God, am I funny? Yeah. And, and that applies also to, you know, this, the, the life of trying to get into entertainment through any, you know, uh, avenue. So what point are you, so you're feeling like, was this really meant for me? Right. When you get that play, what's the next thing that really starts to solidify some confidence? I started, I started going out commercially. Um, I think I got an agent through that play. Like it was not a great agent, but I started getting an agent through that. I got an agent through that play. Um, and I started going out for commercials and then I started booking some commercials and they were all, it was all the same. You asked me what the role was back then. It was grunge guy. Mm-hmm. It was always grunge guy. It was like, you know, stubble, longer hair, kind of shaggy looking. Looked like a flannel. A, yeah. A hundred percent. Like I still wear those. Yeah. To talk to I was going to say, so what do you look like those. normally? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so from there, like casting directors started knowing me a little bit. And there was a casting director in in uh, in L.A. who who really sort of championed me. Um, her name was Francine Selkirk, and oh, a lot of people Francine. know her. And and she just took, you know her, Derek? Oh yeah, she's a legend. She's a legend. Um, and she she just took a liking to me and like started calling me anymore. And then I got like um, 
Did she like you, Derek? I think she kept calling me back in. So. Yeah. She must yeah. have. Oh, good. She's got good taste. Yeah. Right. she's And she's one of those where, like, if you're in with her, you're going to work. She's going to make something yeah. happen yeah. for you. You're, you're going to work. How do you get connected you. with her? It's really getting into those jobs, right? It's somebody, you, once you get in the door and they're like, ooh, I like what this guy's got. Yeah. You you're just kind of, you're in. Yeah. And, she, so, and she's like, you're going to be our grunge guy. We're going to get you. Well, one of them. Yeah. I mean, you know. But so I started, and then I got like a um, theatrical agent, I think, from that play as well. I started going in on every once in a while, like a sketch comedy um, uh, audition. And this was the one that did it for me. I went in for a casting director named Marla Garland. Okay. She has a famous last name because she was uh, married at the Is time. Jeff to a Garland. Comedy, a comedian named Jeff Garland. Yeah. Marla. He's still a comedian. Yeah. yeah. Marla ended up being somebody who was pivotal to me. Because I, I auditioned for the sketch show. I think it, was, it may have even been Mad TV. Mm. And I went in there, and this is how my brain works. I don't prepare beforehand, I, I, or I try to come up with something, whatever. And I told you this. I was like, what's funny? Like, what can I do that's funny? I don't really do characters, whatever. So I ended up doing the scene from Star Wars where Darth Vader tells Luke he's his father. But instead of Obi-Wan as the voice in the background, I had Fat Albert. <laughs> like and I just thought that's random and weird and funny. Yeah. And I brought a cu- I brought a cup to be Darth Vader, and then you know it was like, hey, Luke, Darth Vader's right. He is your dad. You know. <laughs> right. And it, it was like, and I'm doing like this scene. It wasn't like I'm doing a character. I mean, it's like I'm doing this Star Wars scene, and I see Marla, and she's just like looking at me like, this is just zany and weird, and it's like not anything I've ever seen before. Within four or five weeks, um, she had me going into a couple other rooms and other things. Mm. There was a Fox pilot that um, I was about to test for, or I was going to network or whatever it was. I still had no agent, no manager, no like, right. or or no real good, you know. Like yeah. I think I had somebody, but it wasn't great. And Marla's like, "I'm gonna, well, I needed somebody to do this deal and like helped me get uh, a manager." And the manager was. Um, from a company called Brillstein Gray. So she hooked me up. So it was Bernie Brillstein, and he was very connected with SNL. Okay. Right? And my manager was a guy named Jeff Chetty. And I hope he's doing great, because he was an amazing person and really good and all of that. Um, and so from there, from that one audition, things started to align, and um, I started going in for more sketch stuff, and then I got Six Feet Under, um, cause I started going in on regular roles, um, you know, like small things yeah. and then just little credits here and there, a lot of commercials. And then, um, in 2002, so I'd been out here for about four years, Francine Selkirk was casting a pilot for NBC, mm-hmm. an experimental pilot being done by a commercial, uh, director named Rob Roy Thomas. If you're Robbie in with, Roy. Rob Roy. If you're in with Francine, you're probably going to get an audition for the show. Francine brings me in. Um, it was all improv. So there wasn't names of characters or anything. They just kind of let you work, if I'm remembering correctly, work with uh, different actresses and different people and seeing what would gel and whatever. Yeah. And Chetty calls me and he's like, you're, you may be up for this. Like They're really into you. Um, and I'll never forget the very last audition I did. <laughs> You've heard this story. 
they had me come in and just tell a story. Because they were like, we've seen you kind of do scenes and whatever, but now just talk. And I came in and I told them the story about how I was at a prom my sophomore year of high school with my girlfriend. And she like went away to like talk to her ex-boyfriend at this prom. It was like the weirdest. And I was left with a girl in a wheelchair. Okay. And I felt so badly that I wasn't asking her to dance. <laughs> that, I, that I asked her to dance. But instead of like understanding that like, her arms could fucking move. She had mobility. It's just her legs, right? I didn't get it. And I was pushing her around <laughs> on, the, on, on the dance floor and like doing wheelies and like spinning her. Is she and enjoying she, it? No, she's like... Is she... Yeah. <laughs> Wee! Yeah. That, again, again, was that the effect you thought would happen? If Adidas had found that tape, I would have been <laughs> canceled. But so I just told that story about how I ruined this girl in a wheelchair's prom and they just thought it was the funniest thing and like... Probably uh, a few days later, they had us come in and do our final matches. And uh, and you get the show. And I got the show. And the show, Significant Others. It's called Significant Others. It was, uh, it was a weird show. It was done around the same time as The Office. And I have an office story, but we save that for another time. But um, And it was my first, like, I was a series regular on a TV show. So what happens? You call mom and dad. Yeah. And I, you tell them that you just, you just booked... A TV show. What's their reaction? Uh, I think they were not surprised, but they were like happy for me. It was right around the time that I was getting married too. So there was a lot of great things happening. Mm, yeah. So um, I think they just felt like, wow, our kid did it. Like our kid, like. We don't have to worry about him. Well, yeah. and, and also interesting that, you know, you did improv in college, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're doing, uh, <clears throat> which is so different than doing a sketch comedy show or something that's really written out, you know, or doing plays, uh, like some of the people we've talked to. Um, and so the improv pays off. It, it, it always has in ways that I've never even imagined, like whether it be just a little moment in a commercial where people are like, what are we doing here? The agency stand, what are we doing? Yeah. And I'm just like, well, we could do this. Yeah. You, or we, you know, um, the improv is always, and I, and I said earlier, uh, through four years of acting training in school, you know, classically trained, theater, Shakespeare, all of that stuff, Beckett, all of it. The best training that I ever got was being in that room with those individuals in recess and doing improv and sketch comedy for two hours a night. And Did then, you ever get pissed? Because I know that now, and I, it, there's times I go in for an audition and they don't know what they want and they just want you to do improv and then they'll use what the actor did in the room. Yeah. It's happened many times. And then nobody's writing the, the you're writing it basically, but you don't get credit. Uh, it's happened more for me in commercials. Yeah. Like where, you know, that button line or whatever, and you like throw something out there and you're like, what the fuck? That's like, I did that in the audition. Like that wasn't written. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's happened. It's, that's why there's that fine line. And I started getting to the point, especially in commercial auditions, where I was very guarded about who I was going in for yeah. and what I was going to give to them. There were moments when I went into commercial auditions where if the person, and, and you'll appreciate this, that if the person you were in with was so bad and so inexperienced and so not good, I just wouldn't like kind of stare down the camera and they kind of knew just like, oh, yeah. next. Because like... <laughs> 
the director's never going to watch the cut unless you go in with somebody else, unless they know you, they're going to bring you out. But chances are it's, it's, right. a, it's a ruined take. But I didn't want to waste any material on it. I didn't want to waste any mental brain capacity on it, um, you know, mental capacity, because you, yeah. you, you're laying it out there yeah. and you're not going to get it. Um, but I was also very lucky that when you have 150, 200 auditions a year, that you can kind of you can mess with them behind the scenes. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So when you get significant others, yeah, and it's I mean this isn't even a pilot, right? It's it's going to be on. We did the pilot. They liked the pilot. They decided it was going to be on. They were moving it over to Bravo because again it was supposed to be on Thursday nights, opposite the right after the Office. But the shows were very similar in feel. They were like this was before really single camera shows. The only one that existed was Curb Your Enthusiasm, and it had just started. Right. And so this was a single camera improv comedy show, similar in style and feel to The Office. Office was scripted. This was, but a network is never going to put those two so shows. Do you know right. originally that they're going to, the intent was to put it on on Thursdays or whatever day on well, NBC? Was, that was NBC's comedy night. I mean, like you knew that they were. Probably, and then what's the feeling when they're like, "So we're putting it on Bravo," which at the, I mean, and Bra I make no bones about it. I think Bravo is a brilliant uh, channel. I watch a lot of the Real Housewives. I'm a huge Bravo fan. But back in that day, Bravo wasn't the Andy Cohen Bravo. Actually, Queer Eye had just hit, oh. so they were. It was just they coming. were expanding. Yeah, but they were expanding into you know. TV, you know, like uh, situational shows as opposed to just like reality TV. That so leads we, me to a question. Yeah. Do you think Queer Eye killed masculinity? Of course. Okay, that's all. Let's move on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's been waiting to ask somebody that. That's, by the way, cancel number three of the, in the span of an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, our four listeners aren't going to tell us. <laughs> Look, I was excited to be on a show. Right. Um, I felt like it was going to open up some doors, which it did. Um, I had no idea whether it was going to be a long-term thing or not. In fact, after we shot the first seven episodes, six episodes, there was two seven or eight episode seasons. It was not, you know, a huge, they were, you know, mindful of money. Um, I went back to waiting tables. Mm. I was literally... And were you still auditioning for commercials? Sure. Yeah. I was on a television show as a series regular that hadn't aired yet. I was getting married in two months. And I was walking up to people at the Daily Grill telling them what the cobbler was and the special soup was. And, and I, it, it was the most interesting time of my life because in the back of my head, I was like, I don't fucking need to be here. But I was also like, the money, you never know. Right. You got to keep pushing. Yeah. So it airs. Mm -hmm. And it got really good reviews. Yeah, I've looked. Um, I mean, I've known you for several years. And I remember when we first met, I looked at and, and critically... Uh, beloved show and online there's a pretty good community of people that love the show oh I don't even know about that I've never even like I, once once the project was kind of over and done done I just kind of put it off because it's it's hard and it's painful to like be on a show and have it go so run, how long you know, does the run go two years two seasons two right two seasons and, and in fact one of the coolest things that happened to me was in the new in New York magazine you know they have those caricatures yeah they did caricatures of the of the, of the cast so I, it, it was in one of the one of the episodes in one of their um, magazines. So I have the the re review from New York Magazine with a caricature of me. That's so awesome. little cool things. But, but, like by that. season two, it's going to get picked up for a second season. Yeah, begrudgingly did, did, it was. But did you stop waiting tables? Yeah, 
So now you're feeling confident. So you say begrudgingly because it's it's, nobody's watching it. Yeah, nobody's really watching it. It's not catching fire. Which, by the way, is crazy. Because, again, even if it came out today in 2022 on Bravo, it would have been... It would be a hit. It would be a hit. Um, And and, uh, all of a sudden, the momentum shifted towards The Office. Right. Right, because The Office, because the first season of The Office... Was not good. People did not really watch it. I mean, I watched it, but not a lot of people did. I liked the English one better. I did too, hundred percent, and like, yeah, and um, and it was a question whether that was coming back for a second season, right? But then they really threw their weight behind it, and they were like, "Well, this other show we can," um, and they aired they aired significant others over the summer that summer on NBC. I remember, mm. um, and so just and is that a move to try to see if it picks up any yeah, traction? See if it gets any traction, but it, it didn't. It was. It's not that it did or it didn't. It's just like the numbers were. Right, it was negligible. So it's like we could put it on there, we could not. And during the early two thousands, the numbers for network TV shows are still at yeah. ridiculous numbers. Twelve where million, fourteen, for, sixteen million, and people. now they get three million people to watch a show, and they're like, "Ugh, it's a hit." Right. Meanwhile, that's a cancel in the eighties and nineties. I think on Bravo we topped that out at a, like one seven five. Which I thought was pretty good for a cable for show. Uh, that Dead would keep or? you going for years, for sure. And with things like uh, DVR mm-hmm. and you know the rewatch and and all that stuff. I mean, it's all yeah. done differently now. But it was look, it was a great experience. I I loved the person who played my wife. I loved that cast. There were some really good people who came out of it. Um, so when you when you finish up season two, yeah, you find out it's not coming back for a third. We season. knew before it was over. Yeah. Much. Are you thinking though? Listen, I just did two seasons on a show that is aired, right during the summertime. Get, I'm going to guess the next thing's coming along. Well, some movies. I started getting movies, and I did a few movies, small roles. You know, they're not going to give me big roles, but like, right. then I did some movies. lines in the movies. Yeah, of course. Um, and uh, did a few movies, and then and then I, something. I I got real into um, this this. A cycle of auditioning for SNL. My manager really was pushing that. He was not pushing me being on a regular, as a regular on a TV show. He was like, "We need to get you on SNL." And um, so, what year do you audition for SNL? Two thousand five, the year that Andy Samberg and Bill Hader. And I'm convinced that the reason why I was not chosen is because Andy Samberg was like locked up. Like they knew that they were going to take him and his two writing buddies, and he went into the audition the week before. So I was the second week of auditions. So do you think it, you weren't getting it before you walked in? I didn't know at the time, but once I knew, yeah, it made sense. So if we look back when you audition at yeah. GW for Recess, GW Recess, what was it called? GW Recess? GW Recess, Great yeah. name. So when you audition for that and it's you know 21-year-old smoking cigarettes in a room with cubes everywhere. Yeah. What is the experience like now? Sure. You're walking in a decade later right. into SNL. Yeah. Was that a decade later? I guess it was. Pretty much, decade. yeah. Yeah, it was like 12 years later. So for me, um, it happened really fast. We had submitted a couple of tapes over a couple of years. Always got good feedback. Remember, my manager was pretty connected with SNL, too. He... he, he uh, he represented a comedian named Jason Sudeikis, yeah. and he represented we heard of him. and Tim Meadows, who was a longtime cast. Oh player. yeah, Jason Sudeikis fucked me once over a job. Yeah, 
motherfucker. Right? No, he's a good, he's good. He's a good guy. No, yeah, Chili's uh, voiceover. <laughs> Was it? Yeah. You guys had... have such similar voices. <laughs> and uh, they were like, you're yeah, in the bag. This is yours. And then... Oh, sorry. Yeah, Derek was up. out to Jason Sudeikis. He's going to take it. Then Dacus games, comes in and, and takes it. it. Dacus dunked it. Um, yeah. Well, well, I guess Harry Styles got him back for you. <laughs> so it's all good. That's right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, Derek was up for uh, Ted Lasso. He was going to be Ted Lasso. You didn't get it? Uh, I was Ted Lasso. We shot three episodes, and then I he, saw those. And Dacus then they were like, in. "There's no way to make this show with <laughs> with him. Let's get Sudeikis. You we heard he did a great job on that Chili's ad." I saw those tests. A little flat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going through a lot at the time. It just, um, I just could, I couldn't get in it. So I hate yeah. soccer. So you the what do you do for your first SNL yeah. audition? Well, so it was just a. It was like a. It was like a list of characters, and like who's I just, in the room? Well. I only got to go once. I, 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 there was interest two years. I got to go once. And kind of when you go, that's it. That's your shot. So who was in the room? Uh, Marcy Klein, who is a producer at SNL, yeah. a long time, Calvin Klein's daughter. Okay. Um, a very pregnant Tina Fey. Uh, a gentleman named Lauren Michaels. Mm-hmm. The crew, because they set it up like it's a... Like it's a show. Like it's real. Yeah. Now... What's interesting is you see all these people's cast members auditions from the show, right? They're all on the stage. Oh yeah. We didn't. They were doing they were doing renovations on the stage. So you didn't get to be on that iconic stage. No. It's actually cooler. I got to be an audition in the room where the original cast members were cast and they did all of their auditions. Oh. And they did all of their rehearsals. So we were in like um we were so the, we're like Gilda Radner's doing yeah. her audition. That's where you're doing yours. So it was kind of neat because you're in that cool room. Wow. Now, the person who went in before me was a woman uh, named um, Kristen Wiig. Mm-hmm. She was, she, at the time, she was married Varied to a, success. Yeah. She was married to a friend of mine. Um, few people know that. But uh, like an actor buddy. Like, we're not close. Yeah. But like, so I, I knew her. Um, and she went in there and I heard her audition and like, it is very hard to go into an audition after you hear. So you had like to that. follow Kristen Wiig. Yeah. And did you hear laughter coming out of the room? No. No, there maybe a little bit, but like I could hear it, and I knew that she was funny. Yeah, and I think it's known they don't really laugh. They right? don't really laugh. The one thing that is that like my goal was to just try and get something. Right. So I did a bunch of characters. Like I literally wrote this on the plane the night before because I was like. I want to show them something. Well, you, and you're an improv person. Yeah, I was an improv. So I was just coming up with random shit and, and like stuff you couldn't do today, clearly. Um, it was all pretty, you know, edgy stuff. But I did this one character called Bernard Greenhut, uh, guidance counselor magician. Okay. And his whole, <laughs> and his whole thing, this, and this character, and I buttoned, I, I ended the audition with this. Um, his whole thing was that he, he was a guidance counselor, but he was a failed magician. So he would try and convince the kids to go into magicianry. And like he's a whole shtick, right? And like <laughs> so and, no matter what, the student's gotta be a magician. Right, he's gotta be a magician. And it was there was something very you know, as funny as it is, but it's a slice of life character. It's like regret and all of this stuff. And there's this guy, you know, and, and it's funny, but it's also there's a tinge of like, oh, it's it's kind of sad funny. Um, and I'll never forget I the last the last line of it, it's not going to make any sense because we're sitting here, but it's, he says to the kid across from him, he goes, 
after he demos a trick, he says, you know, you could do this or this or this. And he goes, now that's a spectacular type of trick. <laughs> right? And I just, and I did that line and I heard, it's, it's the one thing that made that audition okay for me was that uh, I heard Tina Fey laugh. Great. And that was cool. And like, but do it was. You, and you didn't think for a moment that maybe she was laughing because. She was pregnant. Maybe the baby came. Baby came. Baby's coming out. No, <laughs> I was. I was really happy. It was about the it. character. But I can tell you this: they called me on a Tuesday. The audition was on a Wednesday. I was on a red eye plane. I was writing material the whole time. They put me in a car when I got there with another guy who was testing. So we had to make small talk on the way to the oh, to the fuck. room. Um, we were in this hotel across from Thirty Rock. Uh, it was cold the whole night. It, it was summer, but it was like freezing in this hotel. I just kept going. I couldn't sleep. I was going over material, going over what I thought would be funny. You get there at noon the next day. They put you in a, in a dressing room of one of the cast members. I was in Horatio Sands' dressing room, and there is a stack of contracts about that thick. That is why everybody signs that contract, because you're never going to read it. And you sign it, and you sign away your life, and it's like $7,000 an episode or something like that. I can't even remember and 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 you just you just stand sitting there and standing there waiting. They right. bring you in. They put makeup on you. They, the 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 actual stage manager of the real show comes up to me and he goes, "I'm going to walk you into the room. We're going to put you up on stage. All of your props are already set for you. Um, you're going to see the camera. Wow. They're going to count down. What props five. did you have? I had my guitar and I had a couple other things. You know, I'm going to count down five, four, and when I point, that's when you go live. And I said, I'm sorry, live. And he goes, well, yeah, because we beam it to all of the executives on the East Coast and West Coast. Oh, my God. <laughs> you just find and that I out. And I just find that right. out there. And, and it's like, um, it, it was the most, it was a pivotal moment for me because I felt very accomplished. So in the span of the show, right, the show's been on for 47 years. Maybe they test 40 people a year. Maybe. Right. So that's about 1,800 people, 1,900 people. Yeah, maybe two, right? I'm in a very... I'm in a weird club because I got to that. Right. I didn't make it, but you got to be pretty fucking funny. Yeah. To be and able to. And let me ask you a question. Somebody's got to notice you because there was an opportunity for me to audition for it. I had done an AT&T commercial yeah. on a ski lift that exploded and I started getting movie offers. From... I remember that commercial. Did you enjoy it? No. Okay. Good. I almost got it. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I wondered but who got that one. I started getting movie auditions. Jason Sudeikis. Uh, offers for movies from that. Yeah. And then somebody was like, all right, we need to build your SNL uh, you know, package to be, if they're going to be interested in you. And then uh, my manager turned to me and was like, no, you're not ready for this mm. because you need to gain uh, 50 pounds. Right. Because you're not funny unless you're fat. And that's what he believed. So we didn't do it. And then cut to, who's the guy that's on it now that's blonde and, uh, fuck, I don't know his name. But he did a series of AT&T commercials right after me with kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that guy. And yeah. then he gets on and it was like, you see these moments where it's your, you feel like it could be your time here, but you wait three weeks or whatever and the temperature changes. It just shifts. It just shifts and it's not a reflection of you or anything. It's I, I, this is an interesting... You should put on 50 pounds, and then let's find out if you're funny. <laughs> yeah, that was a shitty time, because my iron was hot, but I had bad management, 
You for me. We could use my house as a home base. I have a scale. You come over once a week. That's all we need is a scale. We'll we'll do it. And carbs. Um, But let me ask you a question, Herschel. When the stage manager's walking you out, you know your guitar's out there on the stage, and now you hear, this is being beamed live to the executives. Is that the moment you say, well, there's only one thing I can do here. Play the Kurt Cobain song. The Kurt Cobain song. Yeah. Uh, no, no. I remember being like really leaning into. I know somebody's gonna think it's <laughs> funny at some point. I yeah, and they did. They that was the thing they laughed yeah. about. Um, it's the most. Uh, it's the most nervous I've ever been for any audition ever. And I've auditioned for some big things out here, like big things. Did you feel like you were kind of lifted, where it's a, almost an out of body experience? Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Like I'm. I'm there. But I'm not really present because it's like there's so much history. You're like walking down the halls. The cast members are all on the walls. You're in. You're in the makeup chair that the cast is in. I mean, it's like you're there. You're you're in it. Are you able to picture in your mind getting the show? I didn't want to because I was like, this is a real long shot. You know that it's a long. See, when you're an actor long enough and you do it long enough, you realize that even when you're there, you're gonna get that call that's like, oh, you know what? Actually. Uh, Justin Timberlake wants to do a year on the show. Right. Like, so you never, I, I mean, I wanted to, I always wanted to believe that I could get whatever I was going for, but there was always that moment of jadedness where you're like, it's never that easy. It's yeah. never that easy. I, I remember being done with my audition for SNL and my parents live in Philadelphia and being so like, like stressed, but it all had gone that I literally, I didn't even like stop. I got in a cab, took it to Penn Station, got on a train, and and got out of the city because mm. I just needed to like yeah. le- leave it there. And um, I remember calling my mom and being like, "Can you make me a steak?" <laughs> <laughs> my mom was like, "Yeah," um, but it was a very stressful day. I mean, it was like it wasn't it wasn't joyful. Right. It was it was a lot of stress, and there was a like you know that there's a lot of writing on it. Like, fuck, if I don't get this, is my manager going to be like, well, this is what we've been working for. Like, fuck That's you. That's it, yeah. Like, you know, and there was a little bit of that. And so I, I kind of walked out at peace with it. Right. Well, because it, so here's, here's uh, an example, which, you know, we've talked to people where they have these moments where they doubt themselves because of failures. And uh, this is a case where, well, ultimately, maybe it was a failure to not get it, was also a success because, as you mentioned, you're in a rare class of people that got to be there. It, it it's va- got to be validating. What well, I was going to say, it validated. It validated all of this shit. Not to bring it back to, to Ohio. Yeah. But it validated the fact that I had something inside of me that was recognized as special and different. Yeah. It's and not just a defense mechanism a, or get myself out of this situation. There's something really here. There was Some would say really a there. significant other, if you will. <laughs> Is yeah. that what they would say? They would yeah. say that. He's significant. Um, Some might say that. Yeah, and, and honestly... Some might not. After the, <laughs> SNL, after the SNL audition, I was at a real crossroads of my career because, honestly, I didn't love being on a TV show. Right. And, and you're probably you're probably on the best type of show you could be on because it was improv, right? And, I and that's not going to happen I, again, right? And so, imagine you're 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 21, 22 year old me. Your goal is to go out to L.A. These were my two goals: 
get on a show, audition for SNL. Mm-hmm. I never ever was like, I want to be famous. I want to be a movie star. I want to be a TV star. I was very grounded and it was very real about my goal. I want to get on a TV show and know what that's like. And I want to audition for SNL. It wasn't get on SNL. It was just to audition. So you did. Right. And it didn't spark joy, which is a very significant thing. Well, if you don't feel joyful, it's hard to be motivated to keep going. Well, and that's sort of where it went where after that, where I was like, wow, I keep, you know, I've gotten really close. I feel like I've hit my benchmarks that I set for myself. And for the next 10 years, 10 years, I just did commercials whenever came my way and whatever. And I wasn't overly motivated really to like keep pushing that dream because I had kind of hit. You validated what yourself. I wanted. Yeah, yeah. you hit and, you hit the mountaintop and of I what was, you were looking to do. Yeah, and then it's about and you it, know bringing in the money. And then it was funny because like after that, I did several like commercials where I was spokesperson and like whatever, made a shit ton of money and did a lot of like fun little things like that. But I just the motivation kind of fell out to be like chase the stream, chase the stream, chase right. the stream, and and I remember thinking. Very clearly in an audition one day, and you'll appreciate this, that I was sitting there and I was looking across at these like 50, 55-year-old guys. They were all wearing really cheap suits. And they were just so in it. Like so in it. And I remember being like, if I am fucking 50, 55 years old and I can't afford a nice suit and I am still chasing the dream of trying to be in a commercial again or on a TV show, then I have gone wrong in my life because I'm, I'm, right. I'm being true to my art, but I'm letting life and the enjoyment of life yeah. and the other things of life, like being married, having a kid, expressing my creativity in other ways that I put so much into this that this is what my identity is. It's like sitting in an audition room with 50 other people who all look similar, wearing a cheap suit, and that's what it came so, down to. But when you, mm. when you move that's in... Very profound, right? Yeah. yeah, when you move into the next decade, though, where you're doing commercials, you mentioned you were spokesperson for a couple of things. I, I think you did Verizon and... Toyota. You know, Toyota. Yeah. Um, you know, what's also happened over the last uh, maybe 10 to 20 years is how they've turned the spokesperson into this, ca- you know, flow from right. progressive, yeah. you know, the all state, uh, by the way, or state farm guy, the state farm guy, by the way, remember I said so many people came out of significant others. Stephanie Courtney, who plays flow was played my best friend on oh, wow. significant others played our, our couple's best friend on significant. So others. did that, a, does that ever enter your mind? Like, yeah, maybe that's what it'll be. Maybe I'll be flow. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. It would be fine. When I was doing like the Toyota bits for, um, the East coast, I, I kind of had that vibe. It felt like that for a couple of years where it was like... Was just, that satisfying? Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Because it was like when you're the guy, they just kind of treat you like you're the guy and you yeah. do 20, 20, 25 spots for and them over a couple of years. And it's not as much work as a TV show. Right. But it's pretty much the same thing. And most of that was all improv again. Right. They let me kind of riff and just do what I'm yeah. going to do. So I got a, a... You did an episode of... Diagnosis murder. <laughs> I did with Dick Van Dyke. Actually, you know what, Derek? I told you that that that's that Six Feet Under was my first job, but it wasn't. Yeah, I forgot. Diagnosis murder. Yes. I played Simon, the medical student. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> did you get to do a scene with Dick Van Dyke? No. Somebody. It was some lady, and I was so bad. 
<laughs> I was so bad. I didn't even know how to hit a mark at that point. Like it was literally, I just, yeah. right. I didn't even know you what I was got doing. Here. Well, I but, wanted to touch on the 55 year olds. Cause I've had those moments where you look over and you're like, Jesus. Yeah. Or it could possibly be that that's their first audition and they just got the balls to step yeah, out. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And yeah, because that's my goal. I haven't done anything. Because <laughs> I felt that. I'm hoping when I'm 55, I'm going to get started. I felt that when I went to do my first uh, extra work, and I got there, and there were like 60 year olds just there, and there's hundreds of them. Well, like a scene. where can I get a sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> and those I heard there'd be craft like, services. <laughs> and I thought it'd take 15 years to just book one commercial out here when I first moved here. Yeah. Did you have like? Did you feel confident out the gate when you got here? Because no. you said you were a little depressed. You were sitting on no. The couch it took and... a year. It took a couple years. I think 2000 was the year that I booked my first commercial. It was Miller Light Spot. Oh yeah. No, sorry. It was for Gu- Gundam Warriors. It was a toy. <laughs> the toy. Yeah. Oh yeah. The Gundam Warriors. We had Derek and I play with that yeah. toy. Yeah. And I, I I was playing that grungy like tech like computer guy. <laughs> you know. Um, and it, and the, the line was like something was like they had like different qualities. It was like Gundam Techo, yeah, <laughs> you know, like that's and, it. That and then a Miller Lite commercial. Because by the way, uh, so far of the huge roster of people we've interviewed on here, it, basically everybody gets started in a beer commercial. Yeah, yeah, I've done like probably four or five of them. I did a couple of Miller Lights. I did a, you know, when you get you start just getting into and yeah. just you do the same shit over again. I did. Three different Verizon commercials. Yeah, I the, did two for AT and T over the time. The commercial know? people that write them, they keep changing them out. So the agency, they don't care. They they're excited. They're like, this guy drinks beer, but Miller Lite hires a new company to do it. Agency, and you're in again. Yeah. yeah. Nobody's seen. Who that. on the roster drinks beer? Is that is that how? Yeah. Hey, I'm a beer drinker. Well, you know what? I actually, we've got our grunge guy. Yeah, he looks like he drinks it was, Miller Lite. It was a lot of that. I mean, like really, and it, and and I I always loved doing uh, commercials, um, just because they were like you get to you get to just be so silly, and like f- you you really when when you you know when you when you have enough of them you really don't care, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean you confident enough that you're funny enough that you've booked commercials. They know you've booked commercials and you yeah. could just go in there and do your shit. And, and like there were times when I walk in there and just be like, fucking I'm feeling real loose today and just have this funny ass audition. Everybody in the room is laughing. They're like, oh, yeah. they love it. You never hear again, but you're like, yeah, that was yeah. my work for today. All right. So, um, important question. Uh, Country Road by John Denver. Sure. Is he singing about West Virginia or is he singing about the West of the state of Virginia? I'm also aware I'm asking this question one time more than I should be, and I'll give it up at some point. I but was, uh, I think you got to do it every single fucking. W- is it West Virginia or the West of Virginia? I mean, it's hard for me to not to insult you in this moment. It's West Virginia. Why? How do you know that? Blue Ridge Mountains are in both states. Shenandoah River is crosses both states. It's West Virginia, my man. Okay. Let's Google it. I'm giving it up. Derek knows. Oh, we Googled it on the second, first episode. What did, we he, what did he say? It doesn't say anything. He capitalizes that big old W. No, no, no. no. The, West. Web, the website that Derek found the lyrics on. Lyrics. Seriously, that question is so weird. I'm going to 
kick you in your Well, I got to tell you, Herschel. Wait, hold on, guys. In the Twilight Zone, do you think it's <laughs> the Twilight of the Zone, or is it the Twilight at night? What's your thoughts? What do you mean? It's Sorry, that, it's why, that stupid is why what am I'm I saying. Again? That was my... It was <laughs> Derek had a stroke. Um, I've given him one because of the stupid John Denver question. It uh, does make me amazing. laugh every time, though. Do you know why... <laughs> Okay, so there was a drunk guy at a bar uh, who was yelling, do you know that song's actually about the west of Virginia? <laughs> so I'm just testing out if anybody else on the planet believes wait, that. Wait, it was just that one I guy hammered. West of Virginia. Yeah, I mean, you could throw it in there, but I don't But that's not what did. he's saying. I'm not saying that's what he's west saying. West of Virginia. He's saying West Virginia. <laughs> west. I think you would refer to it as Western Virginia. You yeah. might. There's no way to know. He's not with I us. I think uh, we need to re-release this uh, matzo song. I got to tell you, when you drink enough of this, you really have to pee. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're drinking Liquid right Death Mountain Water. This is the flat one. Uh, liquid Death. Thanks. Uh, murder your... Th- murder your... Th- Actually, let's get... J- J- we're going to get Jason Sudeikis What's great here. about Liquid Death is they, <laughs> they give you points, and then they sent me a free Halloween costume. What really? is the Halloween costume? Their mascot is a muscle guy with eyeballs in his pecs, and then his head is a can. And he is, I think, an executioner. And he hmm. just chops your head off. And this is for water. This is for water. That's great. They're beautiful company. Well, it's, Herschel, a, it's, a, it's nice marketing. It's, it's a really settled good. matter. Yeah. It's enough for us, this conversation. Done. Are you finished? Me? I'm going to take a picture <laughs> for the <laughs> screenshot. Hey, will you turn that liquid death? Yeah, let's get that in there. And let's get And he's a rebel. Herschel, we appreciate you coming in. Thanks. Thanks for it's your always time. fun to talk about this kind of stuff. We finally got it situated, the audio. We'll find out. I look forward to my next one. <laughs> and that's a settled matter. <laughs> Thank you. We're getting with the swing arm. It makes it real. Yeah, I know. I, I love a swing arm. I have to pee so badly. Derek's going to leave this part in when we're still talking and you.